0: And so, Lord, we pray with that expectancy that you would meet us and that the word that is spoken might be your word spoken into our hearts, that it might be made personal and that it might draw us closer to you and that, Lord, in that drawing might give us that strength and confidence to live the lives you've intended us to live for which you have created us, Lord, in in wonder and in glory. And, Lord, this is a gift that we have through our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. And so in his name we pray. Amen. (laughs) You might think it's a little bit of overkill Uh, here. We've had the reading of the psalm. uh, We've had the singing of the psalm. And over the summer we've been studying uh, the 23rd psalm. I'm a bit of a fan of of reading uh, some of Malcolm Gladwell's works. Some of you may be familiar with him in his book. I believe it's Blink. uh, he He identifies a study done by people who are expert in their fields, expert athletes, expert in many different ways. And he says that much of that is the result of repetition, 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 and practice and practice and practice. I think he said something... Like an ungodly number, like 10,000 repetitions will make a person expert in their field. And I think I've probably hit 10,000 golf balls, but I still, I don't know that I agree with them. But, but, but I keep thinking to myself, repetition, repetition, repetition will help us take to heart those things that God has given us. as wonderful gifts. And so this morning, as we come to the final verse of the 23rd Psalm, I'm going to ask you to be so kind as to recite it together with me once again. We've given you a number of versions. You heard the King James Version. We've got it in song. Let's go to your sermon outline that you'll find in your bulletin, and would you, and would you recite it with me once again? This is from the New International Version. Maybe it's by memory for you this time, but would, could you begin with just reciting it with me? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You have just got to love this psalm. From the very beginning, it speaks of the most important relationship you will ever experience in your life and a, a relationship with the Lord, who in fact is your shepherd. And, and throughout the psalm, verse by verse, we find that that relationship keeps on taking deeper and more profound dimensions and meaning. Because you belong to him, God settles your soul. He gives you a a safe place to rest. He refreshes your inner being. He lets you drink from a well of still waters. He restores your soul. He gives you guidance. He gives you courage. He gives you confidence. He gives you protection no matter what and no matter where, even in the darkest hour, even in the most dangerous place. That's all that we've discovered. But that's all in the here and now. As we come to the final verse, you will notice that there is a very subtle, a subtle shift which turns our attention from the present, the here and now, uh, to the future. Uh, or better yet, is from the here and now to the hereafter, if we want to put it that way. David's experience with the faithfulness of God gives him, and to be honest, gives each and every one of us the courage to commit our future to God. And so he writes in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy, or as the New International has it, goodness and love, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now on your sermon outline, I've written that here, the eye is now set on the future. And I want to be very clear about what the future is in these biblical terms. I want to define the future in a biblical way. I suspect that for most people, for most Christians, the future means eternity. And for them, in that definition, forever then does not start until you die or until Jesus comes again, and he is. Amen? Okay. But whichever comes first, your death or Jesus coming again, in that thinking, that's when the future lies. So I want to be very clear about this. Forever, in the biblical definition, starts right now. Forever is the next 20 minutes as I speak, which may feel like forever. Uh, forever is right now, it's when the service ends, it's when you leave the building. Forever is this afternoon, It. It is this evening, it is tomorrow, it is next week, it is the week after that. And it it is that period of time all the way into and including eternity. Have you got that? That's forever. You find that word at the very end of the verse. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And literally, the Hebrew phrase is the length of days. That's what that is translated as which technically does not mean eternity or heaven. It is just that spot in the distance where it seems that time converges into a single point. It's like standing on a railroad, looking into the distance to a point where the rails seem to come together. And the picture framed by that word carries that thought. As far as my eye can see from where I stand right now all the way out is forever. And it's me and God hand in hand, heart and heart, dwelling together, nothing keeping us apart. That's what we have. Now I've discovered that for some people, God never really makes it out of heaven. He he never descends from the pearly gates. He, he resides in heaven and never goes on a road trip. If you have any hope of getting close to him, you'll just have to wait until your time is up, your time is up, and and you arrive at his pearly gates. But if you catch the picture of this verse, what you have is God behind you, ahead of you, and with you, all the way out as far as the eye can see. So let me repeat myself, forever starts right now. Oh, and one more thing. Because forever starts right now, whatever decisions you make right here, right now, in this holy place, in this sanctuary, is going to have a very serious effect on the future. Now, Don't forget, there's a catch to all of this, and it's not in small print. It's declared right away in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, which raises a definitive question. Is the Lord your shepherd? Do you belong to him? You got to make that decision. If yes, then your future is secure. If not, well, you got some thinking to do and do it right now. Now, over the weeks, I hope you've gotten the point. To understand this psalm, you have got to start thinking like a sheep. (laughs) You got to start seeing your life as a journey where you are moving from one pasture to the next under the watchful eye of a shepherd who is with you and for you, behind you and ahead of you. Which only adds a bit of charm to the first part of this verse. Let me read it again. Surely, and that means without a shadow of a doubt, surely goodness and mercy, or love, as it is translated, shall follow me all the days of my life. Now let me pause for just a second. Does that sound strange to you? It did to me as I began to study at first. After all, if you were a sheep, what do you, where do you expect the shepherd to be? The chances are you would expect him to be at the head of your line, up ahead of you. But where is he here in this verse, in verse 6? He's not ahead of you, he's following. He's following the sheep. Now, as I was trying to figure that out, I I read one shepherd who explained it this way. Sheep that have spent the summer in a high country and are on their way back to familiar folds anticipate their homecoming. The way is familiar. Their instincts guide them. You can sense in the flock excitement and enthusiasm as they come nearer and nearer and nearer to their home fold. Uh, They are coming home, and so they press ahead of the shepherd Er, who is urging them to move faster? Now, I have never owned a sheep, but I have had a dog—a little Jack Russell Terrier. Uh, there were times, especially in the winter time, when it was pouring down rain and it was freezing cold, that I would have to drag her on the walk. It was cold outside; she was comfortable by the fireplace and I'd have to put on that leash and drag her out of the house. But what was really amazing was that she knew exactly on our walks when we were halfway through the walk. How she knew it, I do not know. Somewhere in that walnut-sized brain of hers, there was a GPS system that said, we are now halfway, and suddenly she would turn in from being dead weight, being dragged into a sled dog, yanking me along, because she was on her way home. You might say then that I followed her, being her shepherd. And with that picture in mind, I can almost see the grin on the shepherd's face as he is in fellowship with his sheep as they head for home. It is okay for him to follow. He is happy to bring up the rare. Even more, it's important for him to follow because in that position, he is able to do something for the sheep that only he can do. Look at the verse again. He says, goodness and mercy shall follow me. It's as if, in following, the shepherd has something in his hand much like a broom which sweeps the path being made by the sheep, And that broom is made out of two wonderful instruments, goodness and mercy, goodness and love, goodness and mercy, goodness and love. Now, in the Bible, those two words appear together describing the two instruments God uses and employs in dealing with us and our record of sin. You see, you and I have something that is wrong with us, <laughs> and it's only something that he can fix. In the Old Testament, the book of Micah, in chapter 7, verse 18, Micah seventeen eighteen, 18, we read, "'Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgressions?' You do not stay angry forever, but you delight, and here are the words, you delight to show mercy, and again you will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Those words are together, goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy. You see the words there? Compassion and mercy, showing mercy out of compassion. And I love those words together because they humble me. When I think of the way God has chosen to to deal with my past and balance my record. How he's he's chosen to deal with you and, and balance your record as well. In the New Testament, we read in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, at one time, we were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's on the record But when the kindness and love, do you see that? The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Do you see the words? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Kindness, or in the Hebrew, uh, goodness, And then love. And again in the psalm, mercy. They're all bound together. And they're linked together in the heart of the Lord who is your shepherd. As he goes through your past, sweeping it with forgiveness and cleansing it with love. Now let me pause for just a minute. In fact, I'm going to add this to it. Studies have been shown... I'm really stepping away from my message now, so forgive me. I won't take too much time. I did tell you it was going to be forever. Um, I've gotten in trouble with some of the youth people at the seminary who live with the idea that Jesus was a youth worker. And I said, no, I don't. I have a hard time actually accepting that. But there is that kind of conventional thought that people come to know Christ when they're, they're youth, and that as age progresses, they become more resistant or set in their ways, and to the point where when they finally get older, you know, forget about it. You know, It's in the youth. That's why we need to put our money into the youth. Well, Charles and Wynne Arne of Fuller Seminary uh, challenged that a number of years ago, back in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And they said, you know, one of the reasons why so many people come to know Christ in their youth may, in fact, be a result of that's where we put our resources. What if, if we decided to put our resources, and, and, and resources not just a matter of money, but critical thinking into um, reaching out toward middle and senior adults? What they discovered in doing a number of test cases was that middle and senior adults came to know Christ quicker than the youth did, and over 10-year rates sustained their faith stronger than the youth did as well. In fact, with youth ministry, it's, it's rather embarrassing 10 years out how many still continue to identify themselves as Christian. But for the middle and senior adults, their faith would grow stronger and stronger and stronger once they had accepted Christ. One of the things that they discovered, however, relates directly to this thought. The message that, that would convert the heart of a person of youth was completely different than the message of a person who accepted Christ in later years. The message that converted people in youth was a message of finding purpose and meaning in life. But the message for the person who was a middle or a senior adult was finding peace with a life already lived finding some way to be able to reconcile the hurts and, the, and, and recover some of the territory and, and, and the regrets having them dealt with by Jesus Christ. And that takes us back to the Gospels where I said that Jesus may not, in fact, have been a youth leader because his most intimate contact with people where their lives were changed were people who already had accrued a significant record in life, haven't they not? And as he became their shepherd, what did he do? He came and he began to sweep that path that lied behind them with goodness and mercy and goodness and mercy. And that's what he does with you and me as well. What a powerful, powerful attraction to a desperate heart. And so let me, let me just dig in a little deeper. When I say forgiveness, it has been my experience that the main thing that comes to mind for most Christians when it speaks of finding forgiveness is that step of confession. We're all familiar with the, the idea of confessing your sins. And the words of the Bible make it clear in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us, but If we confess our sins, there's a reality to the sins that we have. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. Over my years as a pastor, I have sensed that we, as Baptists, if we have any expertise in spiritual disciplines, it's that we know how to confess and cause other people to confess their sin. But it's a little bit unclear for us as to what happens after that. Not long ago, I was with some friends at a confessional church that follows a pattern of liturgy, a drama of liturgy, and and some of you come from such a tradition, and you're familiar how that drama unfolds, where there is a prayer of confession, which is prayed on the knees, and then there is a word of assurance, usually a verse from the Bible, which assures a person of forgiveness, and my friend who was with me uh, seemed moved by those steps. Uh, Confession and assurance... And, and it was familiar, and so let's we've got it, confession assurance, let's move on. But then there's another step in the liturgy that introduced him to a new word, and it was the word absolution. Having knelt to confess and then hearing a verse of assurance, the pastor or the priest caught my friend by surprise by saying this. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of His great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins, to all of them who with hearty repentance and true faith turn to Him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you with all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Surprisingly, as I looked at my friend, I notice there were tears beginning to develop. And later I asked him why, and and my friend explained that while confession and forgiveness were familiar acts for him, that was the first time he had ever had anyone tell him that his record was finally cleared, that it was over, and he was absolved, and it was like a gentle heavenly broom sweeping through his past. He experienced the cleansing, the purification from all unrighteousness, and he fell free for the first time. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And going through my mind and my memory as a pastor, a flood of names came over my mind. Over years of ministry, I have watched people who would confess and confess and confess once again, almost as if they were addicted to confession, but somehow were unable to find the freedom to step step on. Move on. Take a step into the future and go into the length of days. As if still haunted by their memory of sin, they were defeated with a sense of shame, and it struck me that we, as evangelicals, may have some degree of expertise in confession and assurance, but are in desperate need to experience absolution. I have to ask myself the question before I move on, how many here would love to to be be absolved? And not have to wait until you enter the pearly gates to hear, maybe, does God love me? Maybe, does God care? But to know it right now, here and now. How many need to hear that it's over, that your record is clean, because the Son has set you free, and that now you are free indeed? Oh, you, you know that Jesus died for your sins, and that it is by grace that you have been saved, uh, There are that there is forgiveness upon your confession, but you may find yourself still haunted by sin and And while the things of God may be dear to you, they lack that dimension of certainty and of freedom, and you are so desperate to hear that your past has been resolved. These words from the psalm are like medicine to the soul. The Almighty has mercy upon you. The Almighty God confirms and strengthens you with all goodness. The Good Shepherd is there sweeping your past, and the Lord Jesus is setting you free even as he leads you into everlasting life. (laughs) I love the way one pastor explained the terms goodness and mercy. He learned it one day while he was home with his dog alone. We learn a lot of things from our dogs. Twice the dog had left a mess in the kitchen floor that he had to clean, and you know what type of mess I'm talking about. At the end of the day, it struck him. The difference between the two words. Mercy was that quality in his heart that caused him to allow the dog to live. (laughs) Goodness was that quality in heart that caused him to go ahead and feed the dog and pet it and give it a home. The mercy of the Lord is more than just his permission that you continue to live. It's It's his desire, it's his love that we have down here that frees you to live the life that he has, in fact, created you to live. And to do it with abundance and to do it with eternity. Now, you put that together, especially in the perspective of what we find here in verse 6. We have the promise of resolution in our lives. Let me see if I can explain Does anyone here have regrets in their past? Yeah. No, don't even raise your hands. I know. (laughs) Don't worry. We know. We all know. We know. We know. We know that you have regrets. Lost dreams, missed opportunities, broken relationships, outstanding issues that now make you wish you could turn back the hands of time, only you know you can't. And so now you live with that degree of sadness, a hole, maybe a secret shame, maybe a sense of loss. Look, if the Lord is your shepherd, he is right behind you, right now, sweeping that path, cleansing the wake of your life with his mercy and freeing you for a future with his goodness. Is that what you see when you look at Jesus? Go back to verse one and read uh, go back to the verse that I read actually earlier in in Titus chapter three verse four that 's it. when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, became known to us in verse five, he saved us because of his mercy, he saved us with the washing, he saved us with renewal, he poured out generously through Jesus Christ. oh, and one more thing, Titus chapter three, verse seven, having been justified by his grace. We now become heirs, having the hope of eternal life shining brightly within us. That takes us right back to Psalm 23. Hope of eternal life? There you find it. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God has a wonderful plan for each and every one of us. For you, 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 and me as well. Just consider the final words of Psalm 23. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because you have a place in his heart, eternity is yours. I want to add more words image to the word follow it the way it reads here is not not only gives you the idea of where the good shepherd has chosen to position himself to resolve your past the hebrew verb also means to pursue not just follow but to pursue be in a position of pursuit and maybe it's good for us to bring this study to a close with that picture in mind John Piper, the pastor and New Testament scholar, he defined this idea of following as pursuit with this particular image, and I love it. He said, picture yourself driving down the highway when all of a sudden you see a red light flashing in your rearview mirror. For some crazy reason, you make an irrational decision to, instead of stopping, hit the gas and try to outrun the lights behind you. 150 kilometers and rising and all the memories of your bad driving habits are forcing their way into your mind and your sense of guilt is mounting as all of your faults pop out of your unconsciousness. You are guilty and you know it, but your car just cannot outrun the law. Finally, the pursuit is too intense and you decide to give up and pull over. You hang your head waiting for the officer to tap on the window and in your mind, you've already had the trial. Your license is revoked. Your fines will drain your savings account. You are doomed. A tap comes to the window. As you roll it down, the officer says, Got a little bit of a guilty conscience there, eh? And then he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a wallet and says, You know, that restaurant you just left asked me to catch up with you and bring you your wallet, which you left on the counter. Like a complete idiot, you reach out and you take it when he says, oh, there's another thing. They just had a drawing after you left, and you actually won their lottery, but you have to respond immediately in order to be able to cash it in. Oh, yes, sir, officer, thank you, officer. You reach your cell phone to make the call, but he reaches out and he takes the phone out of your hand and he stops and he says, oh, one final thing, he says... You're under arrest. Please come with me. <laughs> you shake your head in utter surprise and you get out of your crummy slow car that couldn't beat the patrol car and you get in the back of the patrol car and, and, and he doesn't say where he's heading but soon you realize he's not heading toward the jailhouse but in fact has turned into a, the gates of a magnificent estate, a huge gate, acres of lawns and And a beautiful mansion up ahead. And you ask him, where in the world are we? And he says, you're home. This place is yours. That's why I was after you really all along. So make yourself at home. Get to know the Lord of the manor. He's expecting you. I've got to go and get your family and your friends. Hopefully they will not try to run away from me like you did. You are home. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever God really does love you He really does want you to live with him Today, tomorrow, all the way into eternity And at the end of the psalm we find that he is not only a good shepherd pursuing us with goodness and mercy every day of our lives He's fast. (laughs) But even more, he is a lavish host and his doors are open wide. He's your shepherd. And so as we come to the end of this once again, let's see if we can press this to heart. Take it as the truth it gives us confidence to live with joy with peace with faith would you recite again with me those words of the psalm you find it in your bulletin there the lord is my shepherd i shall not be in want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he restores my soul He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows."